I'm here to talk to you uh, a bit about monster hunting, which is the which is the the subject of my book, which I'll get back to towards the end in in, in the shameless self promotion part of the of the discussion. Uh, but eccentricity, I, I, when I heard about the exhibit going on here, I, I wanted to be part of it because in science, in historical scholarship, uh, eccentricity is so important. Uh, we tend to think of things like science and history as being something rather dull and, and done according to rules and, 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 and not very exciting. Uh, the fact is that eccentricity is such a big part of scientific development, of historical research, uh, because quite frankly, if you don't, approach this material in an eccentric way. Uh, what eccentricity does is allow you to see things in ways that most people don't. It allows you to approach ideas and, and new concepts in ways that most people don't. I know lots of uh, scientists, lots of historians, and every single one of them is as, ex as eccentric as the next one. Uh, but that's what... Um, that's what makes this whole thing go. When we, when we talk about eccentricity in natural history, my question is, as opposed to what? Not being eccentric in natural history? You know, there's no such thing as a non-eccentric scientist or a historian. Uh, and so that brings us to uh, monster hunting. And I want to start off by discussing some of the early monster eccentrics. Um, I, please forgive my texture. I spent a lot of time using really interesting fonts that would, kind of, but as you do when you go from one computer to the next, it, it just goes to this. So I think by now I should just learn and just use the simple uh, Helvetica and not worry about, about any of that. But we, we tend to think of monsters today as something relatively new Bigfoot, Yeti, Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, uh, Orion Pendek, and, and, and the hundreds of different. Uh, Machilian Bembe of Africa, um, but it actually really, and, and the study of, of monsters, we tend to think of as something relatively new, but it really has quite an, uh, an old pedigree, uh, going back all the way to Aristotle. Uh, he discussed sea monsters and whether they might be real or not, or how would you account for these things. Uh, Pliny the Elder, his famous uh, Naturalis Historia, is probably the beginning point uh, for a lot of monster studies, because what Pliny attempts to do is to try to look at all these stories about strange animals and people and arrange them in some sort of way to make it look like we know how they fit into the wider, <coughs> wider world. And so his book uh, was hugely influential to later uh, authors. Another uh, important Renaissance-era scholar, the Italian Ulisse Aldrovandi, uh, just two of his many works, The Monstrum Historia and The Serpentum et Draconu, uh, Serpents and Dragons, uh, were also hugely popular and hugely influential to later uh, historians and natural, uh, natural historians trying to look at all these reports of strange animals and are they real, are they not real, how do they relate to one another. Uh, Carl von Linné, most often known as Linnaeus. We tend to think of Linnaeus as a sort of very straightforward doing, doing work to take all the living things on Earth and arrange them in a proper sequence or a sequence which can be studied. Uh, the, the binomial nomenclature that we're all familiar with, Homo sapien, trans, uh, tra uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, this comes out of the Linnaean system. Uh, but what's interesting is in... Linnaeus's groundbreaking book, The System of Natri, in 1735, what most people don't realize is that it actually, he actually included a whole section called the Paradoxa. 
And these were all animals he thought uh, were genuine animals, but didn't quite fit any of the other categories. So he included things like dragons and satyrs and uh, the cynocephaly, the dog-headed men, and the kraken. Uh, he was deeply influenced by Aldrovandi, as many people of the Naeus' generation were. But what happens is some time goes by. Uh, and Linnaeus and his friends begin to get a little disillusioned with Aldrovandi, sort of seeing him as like the old generation and not up on the latest thing. So by about the fifth or sixth edition of the System of Naturae, uh, Linnaeus sort of quietly removes the paradoxa from the, from the list of animals. But he does keep the kraken. That's the one he hangs on to. Uh, but he shifts it out of the paradoxa into the cephalopods, because by then, uh, many naturalists had begun to realize that the stories of the Kraken, the stories of these giant sea monsters, were probably based on actual animals, uh, mostly giant squid and octopi. Uh, and we now know that what was called the Kraken back in the, uh, the ancient world was likely the giant squid Architeuthis, which is a real animal and is only really well known in the last half century or so. Uh, and so these are all, all these guys who are held up as sort of, uh, purveyors of modern natural history, modern biology, zoology, they were all interested in monsters. They all had that, that eccentric streak to them. Uh, now here's Algervandi's dragon. Uh, he was a bit of an artist himself and produced these wonderful drawings and then had a draftsman produce black and white versions, which could then be made uh, into woodcuts. Uh, to put into his book, uh, and the, the library of the museum here uh, has a really nice copy of Aldrovandi's Monstrum Historium. Uh, so this is one of the original color drawings that the black and white version was done from. And what's interesting, something which I just discovered recently, uh, it's part of a new research project I'm working on, there is a drawing very much like this in London in the archive of the Linnaean Society. And for a long time, the, the archivists there, they weren't sure where this thing had come from. There was no notes on it. There was no, no sort of provenance. It was just sort of in the collection. Uh, and it's essentially a copy of this. And so what I'm going to start arguing in my next paper, hopefully, is that this dragon, Linnaeus' dragon, is actually the, uh, influenced by Aldrovandi's dragon and, and these, these drawings. Because apparently when Aldrovandi started working on on the book. His book, The Monster Historian, was actually published posthumously after he was dead. And, but while he was alive, people knew he was working on this. And so this is before the era of color photography or, or, or mechanical copying. If someone would write to him and say, I hear you're working on this new book on dragons, can I get a copy? He would sit there and laboriously redraw this drawing and then you know, mail it to them. And so I think the one in the Linnaean Society is one of these drawings that Algervandi may have done himself. Uh, well, I'll, uh, I hoping, I'm hoping it's what he did himself. If not, I'm going you know, to have to come up with some other story. But, uh, but it looks exactly like this. So. And here's just a couple of examples from Algervandi's book. Uh, two of the most popular, the sort of bird-headed man on the right. And this is the Cynocephaly, which, as you can see, looks a lot suspiciously like a werewolf. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 the new book that I'm working on is looking at this learned engagement with monsters and how that engagement with, by scholars such as Algervandi and even later into the 19th century, people like Charles Darwin and, and the 19th century evolutionists 
in their engagement, in, in their attempt to try to find out, are these creatures real? Are they not real? How do they fit in the overall scheme of things? That this was something which contributed quite a bit to the development of evolutionary theory. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try to explain how we go from, or how the cynocephaly legends relate to werewolf legends. Um, so hopefully that will work out all right. And that brings us to really the heart of what we're talking about tonight. Uh, the book that I just had published, uh, Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology, deals mostly with what are called man-like monsters, uh, mystery apes, I like to call them anomalous primates. Uh, these are legends of creatures from around the world that sort of look a bit like humans, like big, hairy humans, uh, part monkey, part ape, part human. Uh, and there are actually quite a bit more than you would think. Uh, they Probably the most famous is the Yeti of Nepal. And this is a tradition, uh, a legend in Nepal and Tibet that goes back almost a thousand years of this sort of hairy man. Uh, and, and we see references to it in, in Nepalese folklore. But it doesn't really become well known outside of that area until the 19th century uh, when British mountaineers and explorers start going into Nepal, going into Tibet, and they start encountering these stories. And the word Yeti is probably a slight uh, bastardization of a Nepalese word, mete, which means that thing there. <laughs> so when the, when the local people were talking about it, they would just say, oh, you know, that, that thing there, the thing that run around, you know, up in the hills. And so that's where the, that's where the word yeti comes from. Uh, the most famous name for this creature comes along a little bit later uh, in the... In the um, middle of the 19th, I'm sorry, in the early 20th century, uh, a British mountaineer uh, named Howard Burry was on, a, on an expedition into Nepal, and he saw what he thought was a couple of these Yeti creatures sort of off in the distance in the snow running around doing whatever the Yetis do in the snow. And he got very excited about it, and he radios back and he says, I just saw these things, I just uh, I saw these creatures. And he asks one of his Sherpa guides, what do you call these things? And so the legend goes, the Sherpa guide says, well, we call it this. And apparently Howard Burry had to ask him a couple of times to get it straight. But when he transmitted his message by wireless, he sort of goofed up the name a little bit and he sort of reinterpreted it a bit. By the time it got to Delhi, to the offices of Calcutta Statesman, the big newspaper, uh, it had been re- uh, translated a little bit more, and by the time it hit the newspapers, it was Abominable Snowman. <laughs> and so that's a sort of Western name, but that's, but that's the creature. And it sort of generated a lot of interest because, you know, Abominable Snowman it sort of conjures up all sorts of ideas, and, and you know, the, the West, the, I'm sorry, the, the East, the Himalayas, has always been sort of a romantic vision in Western minds. And then you throw in, you know, there's, there's Buddhism and there's the, the, the lamas and the, the monasteries. And then you throw this creature in there. And so it was, it was something that was of interest. But it doesn't really take off until this. Uh, this is the famous Eric Shipton photograph from 1953. Uh, Eric Shipton, another British mountaineer who is on uh, a number of... He was fairly well-known, not only within the world of mountaineering, but outside of it. He was on one of a series of expeditions to try to get to the top of Mount Everest. 
it would be one of uh, Shipton's expeditions the year later that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were on who actually did make it to the top. So Shipton is very involved in this. And while they were on sort of a practice run, uh, they come up to the top of a mountain and they see these footprints all over the place. And they had known of the, of the legend, and was, so he snaps off a couple of pictures, which hit the news wires like a bomb, and all of a sudden everybody is very interested in the abominable snowman, and the, the British newspaper, the, um, the Daily Mail, puts together a highly publicized, mostly public relations stunt expedition to send scientists out to find this thing, and of course they don't find anything, they just sort of wander around in the hills for a few weeks and then come back and... And, but it was good for it was good for readers' services. But this is really the moment at which modern interest in monsters really sort of explodes onto the stage. Uh, and it's also sort of the beginning of, of what we what is now called cryptozoology, a intellectual endeavor which has been struggling along to try to gain uh, legitimacy and. Some of the early people of, in the mid-19th century, uh, these are all scientists. John Napier, Carlton Kuhn, George Agagino, the two Americans, William Charles, Osmond Hill. These were all trained scientists. These were not amateurs. When we look at monster hunting today, if you watch a lot of these shows that are on TV, most of which are just god-awful, uh, they're populated primarily by amateurs. Uh, but there was a time, uh, even still, where there were a number of professional scientists who had looked at this information, looked at the evidence, looked at the photographs, and came to believe that these creatures were real. Uh, the amateurs tend to believe it uh, based upon uh, eyewitness reports. Most of the scientists who got involved, they tended to base it upon evolutionary theory. Uh, unlike most monsters, like, say, werewolves or hippogriffs or something, uh, the man-like monsters had a certain kind of scientific legitimacy, at least theoretically, because they weren't anything, they weren't like monsters with flappy leather wings or something like that. They were, if they were real, they're primates of some kind. Uh, and so, from an evolutionary standpoint, you could kind of make sense of the abominable snowman. Uh, for example, the, 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 the major theory which most people hold to today, uh, most but not all, uh, the so-called Gigantopithecus theory says that there was an animal living in Asia several million years ago called Gigantopithecus, which was sort of, uh, is believed to be sort of an eight-foot-tall ape that was bipedal and had uh, uh, manipulative arms and hands and looked sort of like a hairy human, but wasn't a human. Uh, Gigantopithecus is known from actual fossil material, not a lot of fossil material, but some jaw parts, some teeth, uh, nothing from the neck down, however. Uh, but the way comparative anatomy works is if you have, most of what we find of you after you're dead and decayed is teeth and jaw parts. And depending upon the shape of your teeth, we can tell whether you're a herbivore or, or, or a carnivore. And from there, you can sort of extrapolate some details. And so it's generally thought, though by not everyone within the scientific community and the paleoanthropological community, that Gigantopithecus was an upright bipedal ape. Uh, we don't know for sure because we don't have any postcranial material yet. But the beauty of Gigantopithecus is that it's a known animal. It's known to live in regions that would have been relatively accessible to where 
the abominable, abominable snowman lives. And so it was thought by a number of scientists that, well, if Gigantopithecus did exist, then it wasn't a real stretch from an evolutionary point of view to say, well, the, the Yeti may be a, a dwindling last bit of a population of Gigantopithecus that had somehow managed, managed to migrate into Nepal and China <clears throat> and adapt to higher altitudes in cold weather, and, and that's how we might be able to account for this. Uh, the fathers of cryptozoology, uh, the Scott Ivan Sanderson, and the, the Frenchman Bernard Huvelmans and the German Villiers, they come out in the mid-20th century. Uh, these were also not amateurs in the sense that they have no training. They were all well-trained. Ivan Sanderson was a Cambridge graduate in, in zoology. Bernard Huvelmans had a PhD in zoology. Vili Ley was a German uh, rocket engineer, paleontologist turned rocket engineer. So these were men with substantial uh, academic backgrounds, not just amateurs running around wanting to hunt monsters. And so in the, in the mid-20th century, uh, Sanderson and Huvelmans meet and become friends, and they both say that Sanderson came up with the name cryptozoology first, but some years later, after Sanderson was dead and Huvelmans was still alive, he was telling people, well, I came up with the term cryptozoology. But, uh, uh, and Willie Lay was never really part of that crowd, but he did, during the same period, publish a series of books on what he called romantic zoology. Uh, he was fascinated by uh, uh, zoological myths and legends, and he wrote a number of books on it. Uh, mostly what he did was design space stations and rockets, but he was sort of an eclectic guy who had a lot of different interests. Uh, and so I always like to put him in there as the third father of cryptozoology. Although there are people going back even further, the English uh, primatology pioneer Edward Tyson, uh, who dissected the was the first uh, Westerner to dissect a chimp it was either a chimp or a bonobo, uh, depending upon what angle you come at it. Most people say chimp, some say bonobo. Uh, but produced an important book in 1699 called The Anatomy of a Pygmy. And this was the first book to show primate anatomy. And it's a, it's a meticulously worked out uh, book. He dissected this, this infant creature uh, that was dead when he got it. Uh, uh, dissected meticulously, worked out all the internal organs and the musculature, and had some really incredibly uh, well-done drawings made of the, of the muscles and the skeleton. But, uh, and, and when he does this in the book, in the introduction to his book, he says, part of the reason why I'm doing this is because there are all these myths and legends out there about pygmies. And he used it in the classical sense, meaning these sort of diminutive human beings, sort of monstrous little creatures running around. And he said, I'm convinced that these were not humans at all, that these were primates, and so I want to dissect this animal to show you the anatomy of these creatures, to show that there's no doubt they were not human, they weren't monsters, they were apes. And so, in a way, although Tyson would, would never have used the word, he was sort of engaged in a kind of cryptozoological enterprise. Uh, Anton Cornelius Udemans, the, the Dutch... Uh, Marine biologist publishes an influential book in 1899 called uh, The Great Sea Serpent, where he, he, he looks at a lot of le sea serpent legends, and he comes to believe that they're real as well. Udemans uh, uh, was the head of the, the uh, Museum of Zoology at The Hague, so again, not, not just some guy running around. This was a, a trained, professional, respected scientist saying, I've looked at the evidence, I've looked at pictures, I've looked at... Uh, at, at 
eyewitness stories, and I think these sea monsters are real things. Uh, and so there is this long tradition of, of, of scientists looking at anomalous creatures. The heart of my book is this guy right here. This is Grover Kranz, 1932 to 2001. He was a, an American paleoanthropologist who was probably the most public, most vocal scientist to support the notion that Bigfoot was real. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Bigfoot is sort of the American cousin to the, to the abominable snowman. Uh, where the, the snowman is often depicted in pictures as white, which probably isn't correct if it's real. Uh, uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch is sort of the brown cousin, brown North American cousin. What, what's interesting about to me about uh, one thing that's interesting about the the abominable snowman is that right after the Shipton prints hit the hit the the, the media. People start talking about this all over the place. And very quickly, it gets into the public discourse, even to the media. A number of movies come out. Oh, there's one with Forrest Tucker where they, and Christopher Lee, I think, where they go into, into Nepal with, with cages to try to catch a, an abominable snowman. Uh, my favorite, of course, is the, 19, I think it's 1964 American children's Christmas cartoon, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In which the there are there are, are adventures going on up in the North Pole, and there's a, a sort of crusty uh, 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 prospector named Yukon Cornelius who has a has a battle with the Bumble, which, which they depict as sort of big white teddy bear with sort of fangs, and which is a really mean and angry monster. Which in the end, however, turns out to be a, a really a really nice guy who saves everybody at the end of the movie, uh, but. That's all going on when Krantz is in college. And he is studying paleoanthropology. He's at the University of California, Berkeley, which is a and still is a center of anthropological study of paleoanthropology. Most of the, or a good number of the, the, the major American uh, paleontology, uh, anthropology people went there either for their undergraduate or for their graduate degrees. So he, he was uh, schooled in an intense... Uh, cutting-edge scientific education, although as later on well, you find out that his, his knowledge of genetics wasn't quite what it should have been. He should have spent some more time in genetics class, uh, and that sort of hampers his work later on. But he, again, is, while certainly eccentric, is well-schooled in traditional science. Uh, he's eccentric in, in a number of ways. He did most of his what we might call mainstream work that is separate from the monster work on Homo erectus. Uh, in fact, he published on it, and he was, it, it was considered rather respected in the field of Homo erectus studies. But Homo erectus were the first uh, human ancestors to have a build essentially the same as modern people. But they still had that kind of heavy Neanderthal brow ridge. And so he was working on a paper on how Homo erectus individuals saw the world. And so he, he, he said, well, you know, they had these very distinctive skulls with these big brow ridges. Maybe that affected the, their vision. And so he made out of clay a set of heavy brow ridges, which he stuck on himself, <laughs> and then would walk around campus and teach his classes with these things on. And 
People said, are you okay when you got clay stuck to your forehead? He says, no, 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 I'm working on how Homer Erectus sees the world. And he would try to recreate the step of a Sasquatch. And so you would see him sort of loping around campus, making these big funny strides, trying to recreate this, kind of like a, you know, a Ministry of Silly Walks sort of thing. And he would do this all the time, and as you can see, this is in his office. He had this huge collection of, of, of uh, copies of Skulls, Pleasure Cats. If you look at down the bottom here, these are his part of his rather large collection of Bigfoot and Sasquatch uh, footprint casts. And so he was a very uh, interesting, eccentric guy. He died in 2001 of, of cancer. And in the, in the early 90s, the, the school he was at, the University of, I'm sorry, Washington State University, um, had a, initiated a no smoking ban across the whole campus, inside and outside. But he was a chain smoker. And so he would do this thing where he, he set up in his office his chair by the window with a fan so he could sit there and smoke and blow the, 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 the smoke out the window so the, 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 the higher-ups would know he was doing it. Uh, but that's what he died of. Interestingly, a lot of the monster people, uh, both the amateurs and the professionals, died of cancer all at the end of the 20th century. Within like five years, all the big names in the field, they just start dropping like flies from cancer. So I'm not sure what, if that says anything, but... It, I throw that out to you in case you were thinking about entering the field. Uh, part of the reason why I use the term crackpots and eggheads, and I got a lot of flack when it started getting out that, that my book was going to come out and this is what it was going to be called. Uh, in fact, a few people who had, a few, few of the amateur researchers who had been very helpful to me, early showing me their pictures and their notes and things, once they find out, found out what the title was going to be, they immediately pulled, they refused to let me use quotes from them unless I changed the title, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to change the title. That's the title. Uh, and the reason I did that was because the story of monster hunting, even back to Aldrovandi, is not just a story of eccentricity, but a story of eccentricity within mainstream science and in amateur science. You have this mix of people from both sides of the aisle who are interested in monsters, who are going about looking at it. And they had, and this is less so today than before, but they had a tendency to dislike each other. And so the amateurs had a tendency to refer to the professional scientists as eggheads, and the professional scientists had a tendency to refer to their amateur counterparts as crackpots. Uh, I didn't actually come up with the title. I got that from the words of these individuals themselves. Uh, they use the term fairly recently, even in, uh, fairly often, even in print. And there was a, one day I was sitting, I was working on this, I was looking at my notes, and I had my notes from one set of manuscripts and my notes from another where they're using the term crackpot and the other one using the term egghead. And as you do when you're, when you're writing something like this, suddenly the two pieces of paper come together and I, crackpots and eggheads. And I said, well, there's my title right there. Uh, so that's why I use that. So it's not, it's not a derogatory term. It's, it's, it's one almost of endearment. And it's essentially one that these people used against each other. So if they want to be mad, they shouldn't be mad at me. They should be mad at themselves because they're the ones who are using the terms. But Krantz was one of the eggheads. Uh, he gets involved in this. At first, uh, here he is in college with his dog, uh, his first dog, Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted an Irish wolfhound. And he ordered one through the mail. I don't know how you do that. How do you order a dog through the mail? But apparently when the crate shows up 
at the, the pet store. He's all excited. He goes over and he opens it up, and it's a greyhound. It's not an Irish wolfhound. So he took the dog anyway and kept it, but he loved Irish wolfhounds. He eventually gets, uh, after, after Nebby, he gets a, a, a genuine Irish wolfhound, um, which he calls Clyde, and which becomes his best friend. Uh, he's married four times. Uh, he's, you know, he's an eccentric character. Uh, he's not... He was very, uh, he was a nice guy to his friends, but he could be a little, his students loved him, but he could be a little quirky and eccentric as, as scientists are. Uh, but, but Clyde was his one true friend through his whole life. And when the dog dies in 1972, he's just heartbroken. And I mean, he, he practically locks himself in his apartment. He finally had an apartment. For a while, while he was at Berkeley, he actually had to interrupt his, he got his BA his bachelor of, or, uh, I'm sorry, BS, Bachelor of Science degree in anthropology. He wanted to go on to graduate school, but he couldn't afford it. And so he had a series of museum jobs to try to make ends meet. But he kept slipping deeper and deeper into a sort of genteel poverty to the point where he couldn't even afford to have an apartment. He tore out the back seat of his car and made a bed in there. So he would sleep in his car uh, while he was trying to find a job. But, and he, he started having some drug and alcohol issues. But he says that the dog, Clyde, saved his life. Uh, because unlike people, uh, he said, Clyde would always come when he called, would always, was always happy to see him, never ran away from him, never gave him a hard time. Uh, so this was his one great friend. And when the dog dies, he's, he's, uh, he's inconsolable. And he wants to have, he wants to get, first he thinks, maybe I'll have him stuffed. But he's like, I can't do that. Then he thinks, well, maybe I'll just have his, I'll get a skeleton out. And I mean, he's a trained scientist. He had, he had rendered many skeletons before. He was skilled at it. In fact, he, he made most of his living in, in sort of this difficult period as a museum specimen preparator. So he knew how to dissect bodies uh, uh, and, and had done dogs before. But he, he just couldn't. He, he, he was standing over the table with this knife and he was just shaking. And he couldn't bring himself to cut his friend, his dead friend. And so what he decides to do is to sort of use the poor man's... If you ever find an animal you want the skeleton out of, and you want to actually cut it up yourself, just bury him in the yard. And leave him there for like a year. And nature will come in, and nature will eat everything down to the bone, and then you can just go and dig him up again. And that's what Krantz does. He buries the dog in the backyard, and like a year later, he goes to dig it out, and he comes home from work. He was doing much better by now. And he says, okay, I'm going to go get Clyde. And so he takes a little trowel, and it's in the evening, and the sun is going down, and he starts digging. And of course, the first thing to come out is the skull. And so there's this moment, this sort of Shakespearean moment, where he's sitting in the dirt, holding this dog's skull, like Hamlet, you know, and poor Yorick, just staring into this, you know, now it's a skeleton, little flesh is gone. And he starts musing on... Should we really allow ourselves to, to, to have relationships this close with animals? Can we really put that much of our heart into an animal? Because the animal is going to die before we do. And, and he's sort of sitting there, and he starts to answer his own question. He says, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't really be human. And I think that what happens in that moment is because this is around the same time that he's starting to really seriously get into monster studies. And I think what he does is he kind of substitutes Bigfoot for the dog. Because he's never really, he could put all his energy into Bigfoot, but he's never going to have his own Bigfoot. 
It's never going never gonna to become friends with a, a, a Sasquatch. It's not going to die. And he's not going to be burying one of these in his yard so we can have that kind of detachment, uh, uh, closeness yet detachment with this creature, with this, this furry, big furry, two-legged animal that he had with a furry, four-legged animal. Here he is. Uh, he's a, a, a U.S. Air Force veteran. Now, here is the other moment. 1968, he gets hired by Washington State University as a new assistant professor of anthropology. A few years before that, something called the Patterson film had come out. I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with it. This is the film, the little short color footage of Bigfoot sort of walking through the woods, and at one point it turns around and looks back at the camera and then disappears. It's been an all, it's, it's always on the TV shows. Uh, we would show you it here today, but if we did, the museum would be stuck with a royalty fee. So we'll just, you know, we'll, I'll, 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 I won't, I won't saddle you with that. If you can find it on, on, on online very easily, just type in Patterson film. But he saw, Kranz saw, and it gets him interested in it. But he says, you know, it looks like a guy in a monkey suit. It doesn't look real. Sometime later, he'll change his mind. He'll become a big supporter of the Patterson film. But initially, he thinks it's fake. So he starts at Washington State in 1968. The next year, just north of where the school is, up by the U.S.-Canadian border, there's this little town, little village called Bosburg. And there's another one right next to it called Colville. And there had been reports of Bigfoot tracks all over the Pacific Northwest. And in November, around Thanksgiving, the American holiday Thanksgiving, I always forget that I'm not in the States right now. Big, big food eating. Thanksgiving is really just based around eating. Um, turkey, mashed potatoes, all that stuff that you eat and like five minutes later you fall asleep because of tryptophan in the turkey. Uh, and word comes out that Bigfoot tracks have been found in the snow, usually in dirt, but this is one of the, the, the cases we've actually found in snow up at this place. And he says, well, you know, I'm not far from there. I'll go take a look. So he drives up there, and when he gets up there, he meets a bunch of the amateurs who are already there, and he meets a guy named John Green, a Canadian journalist who has already had a long history of, of Bigfoot Sasquatch studies, uh, who says, you've got to see this, this is really unusual. So you can just sort of see right here what looks like sort of a black patch. That's actually a footprint. And the newspapers, because... Someone had put the newspaper over the track to pr protect it because by the time Krantz gets there, lots of people have already gone up because it's sort of the news gets out and people say, oh, there's Bigfoot tracks. Come to the big, Bigfoot tracks. tracks. So there's gawkers, people stomping around, cutting them up, trying to take them home. And so there are only a few good ones left. And Green says to Krantz, well, here's a good one. Take a look at it. And this photograph uh, I'd like to show because it's one of these moments in the history of science. There are these moments where things happen and they get frozen in time. Like when, when Darwin writes in, draws in his little notebook, the little, the little tree of life, and writes next to it, I think. Or when Einstein writes E equals MC squared for the first time. These are sort of concrete moments where history, or the history of science at least, changes. And this is one of those moments, uh, maybe not as important as E equals MC squared, but there you are. And when he stands, when he walks over to it standing up, he's a skeptic. He's interested in it. He thinks maybe... But when he bends down and looks at it, and John Green snaps this picture, this is the moment that he sees this and he says, it's real. 
These things are real. Oh my God, they're real. The reason that happens is because Krantz is a trained paleoanthropologist. His PhD is in human evolution. He studied human walking mechanics, primate walking mechanics, human and primate foot structure. And when he looks at this track, to his mind, he just knows this could not be faked. This had to be real. Uh, here's another slightly better image of the, of the Bossberg track, which comes to be known as the cripple foot. And the reason it's called the cripple foot is because if you look at this cast here, right here, you see these two sort of protrusions, projections, and you, you can't see too well here, but up in the toes, right in here, the toes are kind of misshapen. And when Krantz saw that, his knowledge of human and primate anatomy told him that this, these deformations could only be caused by the, the, a, a live foot being broken badly at one time in the past and then healed in kind of a funny way. He said no amateur, no hoaxer, no skeptic could ever fake this because they wouldn't know to do it. That these, that these deformations come in exactly the spot where a broken foot would cause deformation. And so from that moment forward, he's convinced that it's real, and he spends the whole rest of his life, 30-plus years, investigating, writing about, and arguing that these creatures were real. Now, this gentleman right here, this is running to Hinden. He's probably Krantz's amateur counterpart where Krantz might have been the main egghead, uh, Rene de Hinden is the main crackpot. Just as eccentric as Krantz, but for a number of different reasons, very different, where Krantz has a solid academic scientific education. Uh, Rene de Hinden is, a, is born in Switzerland to a relatively impoverished single mother who dumps him into an orphanage, he never really knows his father. Uh, he is passed around from one work farm to another. In his autobiography, he says, I was picked up like a dog at a kennel. And spends most of his youth being dumped from one work farm to another where he's uh, you know, used essentially as a beast of burden. So by the time he reaches adulthood, he doesn't exactly have the nicest view of his fellow human beings. He distrusts everybody, as you can imagine. Uh, he keeps to himself. He's a very private, personal guy. Very little formal education, yet at the same time, he's one of these examples of people with no education, yet is incredibly intelligent. He's sharp. Uh, he, he thinks in ways outside the box. He's intellectually eccentric in, in, the, you know, in the best way. And he sort of bounces around post-war Europe and then decides to come to the New World. And he winds up in British Columbia working on a dairy farm. And one day, he reads about the British Daily Mail expedition to find the abominable snowman, and he's just fascinated by it. It, it just catches his attention. And he says to the foreman, he says, yeah, that would be so great to go to Nepal and hunt monsters. And the foreman says to him, why would you want to go all the way to Nepal? We have these things here in Canada. He said, what are you talking about? He says, oh, yeah, everybody knows about the Sasquatch. He's, you know, this is the native people know about it. They've been talking about it for centuries. Uh, uh, Anglo-Canadians have reported seeing it. Why go? Look around here, you'll find them. And so, as many of the amateurs do, he just dives in head first and begins to immerse himself in, in monster studies. 
Uh, and he spends a lot of time going around. Uh, look, he's, a, he's a very kind of romantic character. He doesn't really care for people. He doesn't like most of the other monster hunters, whether they're crackpots or eggheads. He's happiest when he's out by himself. He would go on these long trips with, you know, sort of a David Thoreau kind of, um, with just a backpack and a rifle. And we just wander for days through the British Columbia forest, all by himself, happy as a lark, looking for, looking for monsters. But in the end, I get the feeling that he didn't really care whether he found them or not. He was just happy to be out there by himself, living his own life, keeping his own counsel, you know, very intensely private individual guy. Um, but he sort of becomes Krantz's nemesis. In my book, I call him the anti-Krantz. We'll kind of play out words there. Which... <laughs> no one seems to have got yet. You know, no one's written to me and said, oh, you shouldn't use that term. That's blasphemy. Uh, but... They get to know each other and they fight constantly. The Krantz Papers, one of the things which allowed me to do this book is that the Smithsonian Institution has the Krantz Papers, voluminous Krantz Papers and correspondence. And there are all these letters between Krantz and René de Hinden where Krantz is trying to be sort of nice to him, you know, and encourage him a little bit. Uh, Krantz didn't have the best view of the amateurs. One of his underlying, Krantz was trying to do three things. He was trying to build up his career. He was trying to prove that these monsters exist, and he was trying to take monster studies out of the hands of the eccentric amateurs and put it into the hands of the eccentric professionals. And so he didn't really care for the amateurs that much. He felt they were sort of running around, just sort of gumming everything up. And, but he would try to, because Krantz was such an important figure in the field, he would try to uh, uh, make nice with, with the Hinden and say, you know, Rennie, you're a good guy, and I, I respect your work you're doing. And Dehinden uh, would just write back and say, you're a jackass, and you're an idiot, and you're, I can't believe you wrote that last thing. When you go in front of the media, what you say, is you, you speak like an idiot. I can't believe the words that come out of your mouth, and like really vituperative stuff. And they would sort of go through these periods where they would hate each other and then sort of like each other a little bit, and then something would flare up and they'd hate each other again. And so you see this really interesting relationship between these two guys. Uh, and these are, and, and this is the Hinden at uh, Bosberg at, at Colville with the very first uh, cripple for tracks that were made from the best uh, of the tracks in the snow. Uh, Krantz was obsessive. Here is just one page from his notebooks where you can see him trying to work out the biomechanical description of Bigfoot's body to see whether or not you could have an animal that size. If you look up on the left hand, this great little sort of crude drawing of a, of, of Bigfoot, and, and then from the side as well right there, trying to work out the, the, the mathematical calculations to say, well, if the average Bigfoot track is about 14 inches, that means the animal itself would have to weigh X number of pounds, and that means it would be, uh, it would be a certain height. And so he, he just, as you can see, sort of obsessively worked, scribbling things out, no, that's not working, no, that's not good. Oh, that doesn't work either. Let me try again. And this is just one of an almost, of just reams of his kinds of calculations. And he was convinced that if he could just show this sort of evidence to prove from a biomechanical point of view, to prove from an evolutionary theoretical point of view that these creatures could and did exist, that the mainstream would embrace this. 
And his problem is he never really gets to do this. He does lots of this work, tries to convince people, and, and all of his scientific colleagues, they either ignore him completely or they just say, you know, this guy's crazy. He's looking for something that isn't there. He was extremely popular with, in the public. Uh, this is one of my favorite. There, there, are, there are also reams of letters from people who wrote to him because in the mid-'70s, he begins commenting publicly on, on these creatures. Uh, there, was, there, there were these shows in the 70s like Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which he appeared in, and in the States. Did they, did they show In Search Of over here? Does that sound familiar? It was a TV show in the 70s called In Search Of. And they would do like weird phenomena. Every episode was like on Loch Ness or vitrified forts or, or uh, you know, Carillion photography or something. And there was an episode on, on Bigfoot about the snowman, which Krantz appears in. And he was constantly being interviewed on the news. So he was, he was a fairly well-known figure. And this, as you might be able to tell from the little drawing, there was what I think is the very first organized monster hunting group in America, out of Vermont, with four 10 to 11-year-old girls who had seen this on TV and become fascinated by it and formed their own little club. There's, there's, uh, there's maybe, uh, maybe it's another one, but there's this, 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 there's this great letter where they write to him and they say, we have a laboratory in our basement. Like a little rascal, something monsters. We have a laboratory in our basement. It isn't a very good laboratory, but we're working on it. And you know, they, they, they write to him, and, you know, can you give us advice, and, and, and what do you think? They even have like a little scientific theory worked out that they actually think it, that, that Bigfoot may be a descendant of Australopithecus. And they actually spelled the word correctly at the time when not many people knew, uh, you know, Lucy, the famous Lucy, wasn't really quite that famous just yet. And so they were already thinking in this ter- these terms. And also eccentrically different because it was all, not just children, but girls. The vast majority of amateur uh, monster hunting groups are predominantly uh, middle-aged, sort of working-class men. Uh, and so this was very interesting. They wrote to him, and the, the enthusiasm in the letters just bubbles over, and you can see this great little drawing they did. This is what we saw. Uh, this is one from an adult uh, who says that, that, that he's planning on going out on, on, um, on a mission to find one, and can you give me some uh, advice on what sort of equipment? He writes and he says, I've got a tent, I've got a knife, I've got a backpack, do I need a gun? And so Krantz would just get these letters all the time. And he actually didn't answer many of them. Uh, the problem was, as unfortunately is the case with eccentric scientists, really eccentric scientists, his colleagues at Washington State, for the most part, did not look well on his monster work. Uh, his promotion went very slowly. Uh, in the U.S. public school system, the lowest rank of full-time tenured uh, or, or full-time uh, faculty member is an assistant. Then you get tenure, you go to associate, and then you go to senior professor, and then professor emeritus. And so, but but professors, full professor, and on average, that takes about 10, 11 years from the moment you start at a particular school school to get to where you get promoted to full professors about 10 years. It took Krantz over 20. 
And it wasn't because he wasn't smart. It wasn't because the students didn't love him. It wasn't because he wasn't producing scholarship. It was because there, were, there was an element within the school that looked down on this monster work and thought that it made the university look bad. And so he was very wary. He was very conscious of that. And he didn't want to encourage amateurs too much. Uh, because he didn't want the school's name to be associated with some, you know, somebody who went out into the woods and maybe ended up shooting himself or somebody else. And, well, I was on an expedition from Washington State University because Dr. Kranz said I should go. And then, you know, lawsuits start flying. And, and so he, he didn't answer back many of these, these, uh, these letters. But the people did write to him on a regular basis asking him, asking him questions about you know, what he thought about monsters. These are just a few of them. Uh, here he is later in life. Uh, he, he was a bit cantankerous later on. Uh, but from all, I was, I was very disappointed I never got to meet him because he died the year I actually started the project. So just I was thinking, oh, I should go see this guy. And, oh, he's dead. Uh, one of the interesting things, however, is when he died, he left all of his papers to the Smithsonian. And he also, in the contract that donated the papers, he also said, you have to take me and my dog. It's, it's, either, it's either the paperwork and my body, or you don't get anything. So the Smithsonian says, uh, okay, whatever. Uh, and they finally had his skeleton uh, dissected down, and the skeleton prepared, and they already had Clyde's skeleton. And you can go to this day, if you're ever in Washington, go to the Museum of, of Science in the Smithsonian, and over in the corner you'll see a glass case with a human skeleton and a dog. <laughs> And it's Grover Kranz and Clyde, Clyde Kranz, if you will. Uh, and so they eventually put it up. But that's the sort of guy he was. He wanted, uh, he wanted to show this work. He thought it was important. He thought that, that monster studies should be legitimate. He thought it should be done by reputable scientists. Uh, he gained a lot of notoriety in the 70s. Someone said, well, you know, the problem with cryptozoology, the problem with these monsters, is that all you have are eyewitness reports you have some footprints. Uh, you don't have any actual physical evidence. How do you think we should get it? He said, just go shoot one. <laughs> and then we'll know for sure. You'll have one. You can dissect it. You can see the musculature. You'll get the skeleton. And people were aghast that he would say this. And he actually got letters from people angry at him. How could you say shoot Bigfoot? Bigfoot's a wonder. You know, they all think it's a big teddy bear running around. And his argument was, look, if these things are real, and he certainly thought they were real, they're likely an endangered species because they're so hard to find. They probably live in remote sections. The populations, of course, you have to have a breeding population, but the populations are probably relatively small. And in the Pacific Northwest, you have a lot of logging, a lot of mining going on. He said if they go extinct because of human intrusion upon their, uh, their habitats, we're all going to be sitting around crying Oh, why don't we do something? And he said, look, if you shoot one now, we'll know it's real. We can get legislation to make protected areas. Uh, we do that all the time. You know, areas where endangered species live. You can't go in, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then we'd save them that way. But no one ever really quite, you know, picked up on that aspect. of They were all very mad at him. And so uh, I'm sure if he's... You know, wherever he is in the afterlife, if there's an afterlife, he knows now for sure whether they're real or not, and so he, I guess he can have a nice chuckle out of that while he runs around with Clyde. 
Uh, and so this is, this, the, the monster hunters are eccentrics within a world of eccentricity. But I think it's important, uh, whenever I give one of these talks, someone in the audience will put their hand up and say, well, what do you believe? Do you think they're real? I don't think they're real. I've looked at so much evidence, I've read so many reports, I've seen so much bad, awful, laughably fake footage. Uh, there just there was some that came out uh, last month. Uh, of a Bigfoot running across a road in, I think, Montana someplace, where it's so clearly a man in a gorilla suit. And, you know, they, they put the focus out of the camera just a little bit, you know. Uh, I don't even know how to put a camera out of focus now. You know, a digital camera is just always in focus. A digital camera is just always... you got to do something to get it out of focus. So, uh, you know, if, if there was someone in Manhattan on the morning of September 11th who just happened to have a, a, a film, a, a digital camera, who actually filmed, there's, a, there's only one we know of, actually filmed the first plane hitting the World Trade Center. If you can beat those odds, we should have just reams and reams of footage of, of anomalous primates by now. We should know it so well, we, we, wouldn't even, we shouldn't even be here, because it shouldn't be a question. We would just know these are real creatures. Uh, but I don't, I don't think they're real. However, I think this sort of work should go on. Because this is how you find out stuff. Uh, the history of science is full of examples of people trying to do one thing and failing at doing it or not finding it. And in the search for this thing, they find this over here. And so maybe there really aren't, maybe there really isn't a Yeti, maybe there really isn't a Loch Ness Monster, maybe there really isn't a Chupacabra or, or, or an Orang Pendek or a Mekillian Bembe or, or an Almasti or Bigfoot. <clears throat> but I think the search is important because even if we never find anything, we'll learn something. And that's what science and historical studies is all about. And I want to finish by thanking the Oxford Museum of the History of Science. I want to thank my home institution of Kane University. English people always say keen. It's cane, like walking stick, cane. Uh, they've been very supportive of my work, and I want to thank you for coming this evening. Thank you.